You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. chapter 2, verses 1 through 30 today. If we remember from last week, we heard about Daniel and his three friends, these young people living in the southern kingdom of Judah. They're 16 or 17 years old, and they have seen quite a bit in their life. They, they lived in their childhood under the reign of a king named Josiah, who was a faithful and good king who discovered the word of God hidden in the temple and brought reform into the land of Judea and revival took place. But unfortunately, as it seemingly always does for the people of God, it didn't last very long. Josiah's siblings, his sons were pretty wicked. And what was good became bad. And because it became bad, God brought consequence on the people of Judea. God allowed the nation of Egypt and then the nation of Babylon to conquer the kingdom of Judah, and Babylon begins to pilfer the temple. They'll eventually destroy the temple entirely, but they pilfer the temple. They take its furnishings and its treasures back to the house of their god, Marduk, and with them, they bring the hope and the heart of the people of God, the very best of the youth that lived in that land in that day. Daniel and his three friends were one of them. But during their time in exile, this kingdom, this has a training program in Babylon to indoctrinate Daniel and all of those that were brought back after being kidnapped to train them on the way of the Babylonian. And what we read in chapter one is despite all of these events, God shows great favor on Daniel in a foreign land. Daniel thrives in this foreign land at the hand of God. Daniel was resolved and believes that God is his only hope. All of his life rested in believing in the goodness and the love and the justice of the sovereign God of the universe. Now, the story begins to take a twist in his interactions with Nebuchadnezzar. But let's pray before we jump into our text today. Lord, we just come before you today, as always, desiring to have humble, teachable hearts, believing that your word is of benefit for our lives. It is a living and active word. And so, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would bring these words alive, that you would bring understanding into our hearts, conviction, and gladness where it's needed. Uh, We confess that we don't know everything, and that, Lord, we need your wisdom more than we need ours. And so we pray this humbly through the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. And so let's start in verse 1 and carry all the way down to verse 11. It'll be on the screen, but join us in your Bibles if you have them. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. And so they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. 
Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not know, not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speaking lies and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For, great, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And so a decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions companions to kill them. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is probably the most powerful person in his day. He has an extensive army. He has access to wealth and resources that are beyond our comprehensions. It will be more understandable his sizable fortune and resources as we read later in this book. In chapter 3, uh, we'll be come face-to-face with Nebuchadnezzar building an image of gold that is 90 feet high by 90 feet wide. He is also noted in history as making one of the greatest creations on this earth. Scientists and historians marvel at the hanging gardens of Babylon as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world was built by Nebuchadnezzar for his wife, Amethyst. Amethyst was not from Babylon. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar, to please his wife, this is a This is a great thing. He builds this impressive structure with all of the trees and the plants that she would encounter in her homeland. Lots of brownie points uh, to Nebuchadnezzar for doing this. And so he would have had all the creature comforts of the day, all the pleasures in that known world were available to him. Yet in chapter 2, we see this powerful king upended by a dream. A series of, determin- of, of, of disturbing dreams. And he is panicked and in distress. He's without rest. And so he calls into his presence the best the world has to offer him. He calls in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Now, each of these groups have their own different area of specialization. Uh, The magicians, uh, they were connected with the spirits of the occult, of of demonic practices. And it's interesting that archaeologists have actually discovered some of the books of their dreams 
that these magicians would have had in that time. Books that would have listed different symbols and pictures and created uh, what those pictures meant in the dreams. And so they would reference these dream books in that time. Next were the conjurers, and they were people who would talk to the dead, exactly who you think they would be. They, They were necromancers. They channeled spirits through their own, of the dead through their own bodies. And third were the sorcerers. This would be somebody that we might call a witch today. And they would cast spells to affect the natural world through supernatural means. And then lastly were the Chaldeans. And Chaldeans can also be a word that equals the people of Babylon, but it also denotes a special group of men who were seen wiser than the rest. They possessed uh, great skills as orators, and they became known as the Chaldeans. Now, I don't know what is happening with Nebuchadnezzar. It is either that he cannot remember the dream in its entirety, or at all, or that he doesn't trust his advisors not to deceive him for their own personal gain. And so he demands that they tell to him not just the interpretation, but the dream itself. Now the council in front of him know that this is utterly impossible. Uh, For them, dream interpreting always happened by somebody telling them the dream and them consulting their dream books and then conveying to them the symbolism within those dreams. The king has changed the rules of the game here. Now, God is not a stranger to revealing plans and power through dreams in the Old Testament. He does it quite often. Uh, They always were spoken by people and then interpreted. Nebuchadnezzar is, is going about it a completely different way. And so, despite politely informing the king that, sir, we, we can't do that for you. Nebuchadnezzar grows more irate and agitated and irrational, and the council that he is surrounded by grows more and more helpless to try to maneuver around the king's demand. And so finally, these Chaldeans, one of the great orators, tells the king that, look, there's no man on earth that can meet your demand, and there is no one that can show the king his dream, only the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That's an important phrase. Now, the Chaldeans or, or the Babylonians' gods were interesting, to say the least. They were, uh, I, I would say, they are a little bit like Pinky from Pinky and the Brain that we talked about last week. They are narcissistic schemers. They, they don't concern themselves with people on the world. They just are in it for themselves. And somehow, the people in the world worship these horrible gods And so what the king is asking for in these interpretation and telling the the dream is utterly impossible for the fake gods of Babylon. But for a man that is bent on conquering the world, a a man who may even consider himself to be such a god, a a man who's even named after the Babylonian god for wisdom, uh, these answers from his advisors were not suffice. So Nebuchadnezzar has enough. And he calls for all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. And so we see that for all the resources of wisdom that good old Nebuchadnezzar had at his disposal, in the end, the wisdom of Babylon, and to a greater degree, the wisdom 
of the world can only produce insecurity and anxiety and anger. You know, the world can promise us many things, but it cannot deliver on what truly matters. No amount of money or power or no acquisitions of possession or lands or people will ever be able to provide what mankind and its rulers really want. It will never be able to provide the peace that we so long for in this world. It cannot. Now notice who Nebuchadnezzar does not invite to his meeting. Remember in chapter 1 how blown away he was with Daniel and his friends. But yet he is not invited to this counseling session. He seeks him not. And I think it's interesting that often we follow a similar pattern in this world, don't we? That we often seek answers from everything else in this world. And only as a last desperation do we seek the hand of God. Daniel is innocent. He's done nothing, but yet he is condemned to die just like the rest of the Babylonian wise men. I mean, think of the journey that Daniel has had in just this brief reading of chapter 1 and some of chapter 2. He has been in a land that was reformed and reviving, that turned away from God, conquered by the Egyptians, conquered by the Babylonians. He is kidnapped and then forced to go back to a a place that he doesn't know, away from his family, away from his home, and they attempt to change the way that he thinks, to change the way that he lives, and to change the one that he worships through the Babylonian training program of indoctrination. And now in this foreign land, he is sentenced to death. (laughs) I mean, if there is any cause for someone to feel like they're a victim, we would say Daniel would have every excuse to be in despair. But despite all of that, what we notice in Daniel is that there's an inner resolve and a prudence and a wisdom that is unlike anything in this world. Let's look at verse 12 here. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning these mysteries. And so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the God, of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might, who changes times and seasons, who removes his kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells within him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. 
Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now how would you fare if a gaggle of traveling soldiers arrived at your home in effort to kill you, uh, to kill you for something that you were not guilty of, you were completely innocent of. Daniel's resolve and wisdom here are remarkable. It's one of the hallmarks that we see of Daniel, his trust for God in matters of uncertainty. Daniel believes that God is his only hope in this land. And do you notice that Daniel had in asking for an appointment with the king to inherit his dream, did not know the interpretation of that dream. He asked by faith for an appointment with the king, not knowing what God would do, trusting that God would deliver. You know, how many times in our life do we live by impulse and not by faith? How many of us at seeing the king's guard would have gone to our closets and unlocked our gun cabinets at the sight of them? Or how many of us would be seized with anger or hatred at hearing of the injustice to be innocent and sentenced to death? Yet in our impulse, we take things into our own hand and we give no room for God to show his glory and his might. Our trust evaporates often in moments of crisis, but very often it evaporates in minimal moments of resistance, and even when we don't get our own way. Daniel doesn't take the situation into his hands. He leaves it where it belongs, in the hands of his only hope in life and death, the sovereign God of the world. Daniel's not stalling for time like the Chaldeans were. No, he believes that God will provide. And he commits himself and his friends to pray. And God answers. And then Daniel blesses the name of God. Did you notice the size of Daniel's God? Did you notice the size of Daniel's God in his confession? As he's speaking blessing of God, he speaks of him as one who exists forever and ever. In whom wisdom and might are inhabited in who is over and controls the times and the seasons and the leaders and the kingdoms, who is the author of wisdom, the revealer of truth, the one who knows the darkness and the way of evil, yet in him is the light that extinguishes it. Daniel's God is bigger than himself. Daniel's God is bigger than his status, bigger than his wisdom and strength and ability. And in this, we get a picture of the true source of Daniel's prudence and wisdom and strength. It's not in Daniel. It's outside of Daniel. It's in the God that he loves and he trusts by faith. Daniel doesn't know what God's going to do. He doesn't know how this is going to work out. He just knows that God is with him. The one thing that these wise men in their council with Nebuchadnezzar said was impossible that only the, that gods don't dwell with those of the flesh. No, Daniel knows the sovereign God of the universe. And he trusts the sovereign God of the universe. And God knows him. He's in exile from his home, but he's not in exile from his God. Daniel's foundation is in a God who is colossal and unchanging. 
It is to say that God is immutable. It's one of the characteristics of God, an attribute of God. He is unchangeable. God has existed forever. He has never changed. To the prophet Malachi, God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. In Hebrews, we read of Jesus. It says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are in crisis, but there are two entirely different responses. Nebuchadnezzar has moved to anger and violence, but Daniel is at rest in his circumstances. He's unaffected by its severity. And the difference here is that Nebuchadnezzar lives and loves a world that is always changing. It is where his hope is. But in that world, there will always be a threat to his power. There will always be a nation on his doorstep. There will always be a need for him to prove himself to the world and its people. There is nothing stable in his life, nothing solid. And he exhibits a power that is chaotic and prone to variation. There is no rest in him or in his kingdom. But Daniel has set his heart and his mind and his strength on a God that has no variation, a God that we can't add to, a God that we can't take away from, one who has been faithful and will remain faithful, who is good beyond our comprehension. And Daniel believes that he's worthy of trust regardless of his worldly circumstances, regardless of all the changes and the challenges of his life. I think for us that often the only certain thing for us in this world is change. In fact, it's said that you and I will, in our lifetime, probably go through a number of jobs, uh, 12 different jobs, and we will flow and, and through different supervisors and employers and bosses and boards. Our lives will consist of chapters that have different relationships and responsibilities and expectations. Every season of our life brings a set of new challenges and uncertainties. We leave behind our childhoods to enter into the confusions of adolescence. And there we face the challenges of school and then jobs. And then maybe eventually we move into the challenges of marriage, of bringing two people with distinct livelihoods into one relationship to reflect one God. And we move through the highs and lows of children, then life without children in our home, through caring for our parents who are aging, to a body that doesn't stop aging, and to live in a world that never stops selling. The only consistent thing in this world is its inconsistency. And there is no rest to be found here. There is no rest for those who have hope in the world because there is nothing to anchor to. Your minds this morning might be full of a half dozen, at least, of worries and fears. And let us in here today remind us that like Daniel, we are in exile, that this is not our true home. This is not our world. Our home is with God, given to us by faith in Christ Jesus. And we must anchor ourselves in that world and none other.
to a king in a kingdom that never changes nor is ever compromised. And the wisdom and grace that we find in that kingdom is unlike anything in the world. James, the brother of Jesus, says in his letter in chapter 3, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and insere. And don't we see that wisdom in Daniel's life? It's pretty remarkable in his request to the king that he makes a plea for them not to harm the wise men of Babylon. I mean, that seems extraordinary considering the fact that these men were impartially, were partially responsible for his kidnapping in the kingdom of Judah and then bringing back to Babylon and then their attempts to indoctrinate them. It would seem easy for Daniel just to say, hey, don't kill me. But he says, no, don't harm the wise men of Babylon. Daniel doesn't trust his impulses or desires. He trusts in God. And he knows it is God that establishes the kings and the kingdoms. Daniel knows the mercy that God has given to him. In chapter 1, Daniel writes with his own pen about how God gave him favor and wisdom in that land. Daniel knows the mercy that God has given to him, and it is the mercy of God that he must give to others. Let's look at verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can reveal mysteries. Can I show the king the mystery that the king has asked? But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed come, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals the mysteries made known to you what will be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now, we have to believe that Nebuchadnezzar in this moment has to be thinking, are you really able to interpret my dream? Can you do this? Uh, can you really do this? I mean, he's got to have some doubts considering the fact that his previous council of wise men and enchanters and conjurers proved of very little worth to him. He's got to be doubtful. And so Daniel is marked with compassion. And he goes in front of the king. And we notice one of the last characteristics here in chapter 2 of Daniel is his humility. I mean, that is Daniel. Despite all of his gifts, I mean, Daniel is uh, handsome beyond description, right? He has uh, a brilliance about him that is unrivaled. He is spiritual. He is physically just a specimen unlike any other. He has amazing training. He has 10 times more wisdom than anyone else. 
And here he has an audience with a king. And not only that, he can interpret dreams and tell the future. (laughs) If anyone ever had anything to boast in, to be proud in, Daniel did. But what does Daniel do? He says, hey, uh, I can't take any credit for this. I'm not anybody special. I'm not anybody better than anybody else. It is God that is a revealer of secrets. He has done it for his own purposes. What a heart of humility that Daniel had. In that moment, do you realize the power that he could have seized in that land through his manipulation? And so listen, what I think that we see in Daniel in this chapter are a number of things. But I think what it means for us most is what it looks like to be a person in crisis that's rightly oriented. A a person that is right for crisis is first rightly related to themselves. Uh, They've got their heart's issues together. Not fully, but they know where their authority is. And it's not in themselves. And the person that can thrive in crisis is rightly related to God. He is right with God. They have placed their hope rightly in a God who is trustworthy and faithful. And a person that is right for crisis is rightly related to other people. They love others, and they don't think of themselves as better. That is what Daniel exhibits to us as one who believes that God is his only hope, that he understands that life isn't about him. He's rightly oriented in himself. He is not the sovereign authority of his life. And he recognizes that. And he's rightly oriented with God. He believes that God can and does. And that God is merciful. And then he is rightly oriented with the people of the world. He loves others, and he does not think himself to be better. You know, in this chapter, we see that God is the great revealer. Now, I have my doubts if God reveals himself through dreams in this day, but I do believe that God reveals himself in salvation, that God reveals himself in our hearts, that we know him and trust him. And so maybe our prayer in this week is that God would reveal to us our limitations, that we would rightly orient ourselves about us. And that God would reveal to us his unchanging nature, that he never changes, and that he's bigger than us, our world, and anything that we can imagine. And that he would reveal to us the mercy that he's given to us and the love that he's given to us that we don't deserve, that we might orient ourselves properly in this world to one another, never thinking that we are better than the others. Let us pray that God would reveal those in our hearts. And like Daniel, by faith, trust in him and go to prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and and we thank you for the example of Daniel. We thank you of an example of someone who trusts God as their only hope in this life. And so, Lord, will you help us in in this life that is full of changes and challenges? 
Will you help us to be anchored to a God that never changes? That there is no variation in? That we can't add to or take away? And let us be overjoyed by the fact that that same God has sent his son to die for us, that he might redeem us and call us his own. And so, Lord, we thank you for the wonders of Scripture. Will you reveal to us your mercy and your kindness and your goodness? And we pray this in the beautiful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.